Hey, what's up, y'all? In this episode, we got Coach Mike McGraw from Baylor University men's golf team. And Mike has just been an awesome coach for so long. He's been around some of the greats in the game. He was at Oklahoma State with Ricky Fowler and some other notable players. He takes us through some incredible stories and just things he's seen from performance, you know, what it takes, what it takes to grow in this game. Awesome episode coming up. Mike McGraw, let's go. Hey, what's up? I'm your host, Kyle Drink, and we're going Beyond the Swing. Well, glad to have you on. I'm excited to talk with you. How's things out in Texas? Uh, everything's great. Doing well. Um, kind of experiencing our first little, real cold snap of the winter, although yesterday and today have been warm. Uh, we're probably going to be chilly the next two days and get back to normal. So, um, what's, what's chilly for you? Uh, in the mid 40s for the high. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And then I think we are 50s and 60s for the next week to 10 days. So it'll be okay after that, but just a little cold spell. Yeah. So are you guys, you're never really like fully shut down out there from outside, are you? We were shut down last year. We had that incredible historical uh, storm where it just set the cold weather came from Canada, came right down, just set on Texas for a week, mm. uh, basically zero to five degrees for a week. Um, I've only seen one snowfall in Texas in eight years, so in central Texas. So we, we don't get much, uh, but last year was historical. Yeah. Were you guys uh, pretty affected by that? I know there's a lot of pretty devastating stories. Yes, it did affect Bermuda grass. If it wasn't covered and protected, it would, you were probably going to lose a closely mown Bermuda grass like greens. Um, roughs and all of that survived in fairways, but uh Greens that weren't covered were, were damaged greatly. So, Gotcha. So you guys are gearing up to, to get going now, right? Or have you started practices? We start practice officially Saturday. Um, we're still in off season. So actually January 30th, but we can do some skill instruction in the off season. You get mm -hmm. four hours of skill instruction per week. So we'll do that on Saturday, but uh, officially we'll start January 30th with the spring season. Gotcha. How's the, how's the squad looking this year? Well, we had a little bit of a rough fall, did not play very well, had a really tough schedule, which I had planned on. I wanted it that way, but we didn't perform very well. We had graduated four seniors last year and three of those were in the lineup. So it was kind of a, a little bit of a shocker to the young guys, but honestly a great wake up call. I, I, I can't recall having a better off season in my 35 years of coaching so I don't know what that means other than I do know progress has been made and I'm certainly not concerned about the way we played in the fall. It's uh, two and a half, three months later. So what, what do you mean by the good off season? Just like, like the guys practice well, or were you involved? You can't be involved in that. Can you? We can for eight hours a week, uh, up to four hours of skill instruction, as I said, and then the other four hours could be working out, but, but the guys just did a nice job of, of uh, a lot of them needed to put on weight. They did that. A lot of them need to pick up some speed in their golf swing. They did that. A lot of them need to work on short game and putting. They've done that. Uh, all but one competed over the break in a tournament, either in California, Arizona, or Florida. So they played some golf over the break competitively. They, it, it was a, I don't know, to me, it was a great off season. Energy levels are high. Had a great team meeting yesterday just to welcome them back. Uh, if, if any indication of what the kind of work they did over the break 
Uh, I feel like they're in a better place than they were in October. And they did great in the classroom last fall, too. Uh, 3.55 for the 10 guys on the team, which uh, is a nice GPA. So uh, they, they do it on the, on the golf course and in the classroom. But uh, I'm really proud of that as well. So when you get um, like the off seasons and, and things like that, breaks, summer breaks, I mean, are you giving them a lot of stuff to do? Like what's, if that's the thing I'm always fascinated with, right? Cause I know all these kids probably have their private coaches, um, you know, so there's always bridging that gap of, you know, the collegiate side and the, I guess I'll call you a performance coach and right. some of the stuff they have at home. We're somewhat limited uh, in off season and vacation periods, that type of thing. We're limited and actually off season, like, Summer is a little bit different than a vacation period. The rules are kind of a little bit uh, cumbersome, if you will. Um, but if generally, if a kid invites you into his world, you can help him out. But we still are limited to the eight hours per week, four hours of skill instruction. So it's, you, you kind of have to be careful what you do. Uh, basically, you end the fall season. You say, guys, listen, we'll start back up again January 18th or whatever it is. And obviously, we all need to get better. Or we need to do this or that or whatever. And uh, so you're limited on what you can uh, demand and, you know, expect from them. But I think if you recruit the right way, you don't need to make, have that conversation anyway. If you recruit the right way and you've got a kid who is highly motivated, uh, I, you know, I, there's an old saying, light a fire under him. You've heard that saying, I'm sure. I don't agree with that saying. That, that's a ridiculous saying. If he doesn't like the flame that you light underneath him, he's just going to move away from the flame. What I like to do is light a fire inside them. So you like to, at certain times, find ways where you can get inside that head and inside that heart and kind of get where, where does he really live and what's in there right now? Is there a flickering flame going on in there? And could I ignite that? And But that's what you want to do in recruiting is find a kid who's got that. And sure, he's going to have times of less motivation or times of lower motivation or times when he's burnt out or whatever. And you understand that. But you don't want to have to try to motivate a kid. If I have to motivate a kid, I got the wrong guy. If somebody has to motivate me to be a better coach, they've got the wrong guy coaching for them. So I, I try to surround myself with people like that are pretty self-motivated, self-starters. You still miss in recruiting. Trust me, you do. Yeah, miss. I understand. I mean, so, you know, one thing I've always been curious about and I would love to talk to you about is, is like early recruiting. I mean, that's been kind of a, a long topic, right? I mean, I coach a ton of juniors. I always have. And it's like, you know, every, I think a lot of like parents and I'm not trying to say this in a bad way, but get to that. Like, I want my kid recruited in eighth grade. You know, when do we start talking a coach's thing? But like as a coach, you can get burned by catching a kid that early. Right. You can. And, and there's been a lot of mistakes made by coaches over the last several years when I can remember when I was at Oklahoma State, my early years at Oklahoma State, guys were still taking their five visits in the fall of their senior year, making the decision and, you know, they made the decision literally a week before signing date in November. So that those days are gone. That's not going to happen anymore. Generally, the best players in the country might commit five or six years before they go to college. And yes, some of those pan out and be great players and others flash out and don't do well at all. The, the, the problem is this by human nature, our human nature, just who we are, we are impatient. <laughs> and I'm an extremely impatient human being. That's just who I am. So I have to guard against that in recruiting because if I if I just say I've got to get this kid, I've got to get that kid, I've got must get them when you know get a commitment when they're young, whatever. And by the way, the rules have changed, so you can't really get a commitment verbally from them until after their sophomore year at June 15th. Because you, you, I mean, 
you can't get it until uh, later because you can't con- you can't communicate with them anymore at a young age. But the problem is, is we're all so impatient. And so if kids start seeing that all their, their buddies that they run with and compete against are, com- are committing and coaches see that all these kids are committing to different schools, both sides get really impatient. Like, oh, we've got to do it now or else. And it's unfortunate. I'm not going to blame one side or the other. I'm going to say that it's just kind of the world we live in. And so uh, the rules have been changed a little bit where you can't communicate with them until you can start communicating June 15th after their sophomore year you can communicate to them by email, text, phone call, whatever. So you have a couple of months where you can actually get to know them. Mm-hmm. And then they can start coming for visits in the fall of their junior year, which it used to be fall of your senior year, but now official visits can occur in their junior year, kind of getting bridging the gap and getting those two timelines a little closer. I'm, I'm still a fan of being patient and waiting. And, um, and I make mistakes. I have made mistakes in recruiting and players uh, make mistakes when they commit it just happens because i mean ultimately it's not a perfect science at its best mm-hmm. it's not perfect and but when you start circumventing and going well i i love their football stadium i think i'll go play golf golf there it's like that's not a good reason and i did a podcast with my former employer mike holder at oklahoma state last year and he's now retired and no longer an athletic director but when mike was the coach at oklahoma state uh, he talked about how the scholarship that everybody's looking for, that's the least valuable thing that a parent or a player can get if he's going to the right place. What's most valuable is all the life lessons you're going to learn. It's the people they surround you with. It's the teammates that they surround you with. It's the environment that they create that is either toxic or it's flourishing. That's more valuable than that scholarship. Now, I realize dollars are real. I realize it, but, and, and it's, it's a real thing for families, but the truth is if, if you really, really are looking at this lifelong decision, it's more important to do the investigating and do your homework and find out, would I want to go play for Mike McGraw? I, I'm not for everybody. I've said that on numerous occasions, but I am for some people. And if people do their homework and I do my homework, we might end up with a good fit. So yeah, this show is brought to you by Mental Golf Type. And if you haven't heard of Mental Golf Type yet, then you need to go to mentalgolftype.com and check this out because this is an incredible, powerful mental game of performance system that you can implement very easily because it is tailored to how you and how you are mentally wired. So some of the questions you might have had along the way of, why can I perform great on practice? Why do I hit it great on the range and I go on the course and it's something totally different? Why am I inconsistent? Why can I score so well one day and the next is something totally different? Well, all of those questions have to do with how you are mentally wired, how you are using your mental energy, how you're seeing targets, how you're making decisions. This is all stuff that has to do with your mental golf type and you could take your free assessment and figure out a lot of things really quick for absolutely free at mentalgolftype.com so you definitely want to get over there and check that out because i can't even imagine trying to coach players without knowing that information Uh, so again check out mentalgolftype.com you won't regret it now let's get to that show no i think that's that's perfect and i think you know again i'm not a college coach by any means but you know, I think it would be easy to just kind of look at numbers on paper and be like, I want that kid because, you know, they're scoring well. Just like in basketball, you want the the tall guy that can dunk on everybody, but he might have a horrible attitude. Right. 
Right. You know, so I mean, I understand that. So is there certain things that you're looking for in recruits or do you just kind of go with your gut? Well, you kind of go with your gut and sometimes your gut isn't correct, but hopefully, it, but I truly do this. I, I start every recruiting year with a big group of guys because there's a ton of kids in the United States that are good enough to help Baylor be a better golf team. Tons of them out there. But I kind of shrink that down pretty quick with academics because Baylor's a fairly academic school it's fairly strenuous. It's not easy. Okay. So that will shrink it a little bit because I, I don't want to bring a kid in who's academically challenged or going to have a hard time because his golf's going to suffer as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't want to bring him into that situation. Um, I wouldn't have done very well at Harvard. <laughs> you know, I just wasn't that good a student. I was a good student, but I could not have handled the workload at Harvard. It just wouldn't have happened for me. So I do shrink that big group down to a smaller group. And then I, I kind of figure out from that group, geographically speaking, which kids don't make sense or, you know, and do I like recruiting in Texas or outside the Texas or outside our country or wherever? So I kind of let geography shrink it down a little more. And then when I get to that group, which I've done my homework, I've got it to a smaller, workable, manageable number. Then I start trying to find out what kind of character they have. Um, it, to me, it's really, really important because you can invite problems onto your team. You can invite uh, low character or poor character on your team. And I just don't want to do that. It doesn't mean I'm not going to miss and get a kid on the team occasionally that has poor character. And then I have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. I will say this. I've only had two transfers of kids I've recruited in my entire career. Of kids I inherited, I had a couple more, but only two. I don't want transfers. I fight for those relationships. They're really, really important to me. But the best way you can fight for them if you're talking to a young coach is you do it in recruiting. You build a relationship in recruiting and find out if this makes sense. And then you got a chance. You just, your odds of succeeding while they're there at your school go way up. So the last little filter that I use is character. And, and by the way, don't use, uh, is he a hardworking kid as a filter? Because 100% of the kids are going to tell you they're hardworking. Sure. I mean, uh, and the people that are giving them recommendations are probably going to try to say the same thing for them. And I was a hardworking kid and I didn't end up being a great player. So hard work, it's important and it's really, really something I want, but it's not the most important filter to me. Character is the most important filter. Yeah, I love that. And that's right. I mean, I've had those conversations and I always try to be honest with the coach, though. And I told kids like, look, if you're not, you know, if your attitude's bad or something, I'm going to tell that coach that otherwise that burns my credibility. You know, they'll never trust me with another recruit. So I always try to be honest and I've had to be really honest about a couple of kids that probably harmed them. But again, it's honest, though. I don't want to send a bad recruit your way. But um you know, the other thing I'm kind of curious about with the recruiting stuff is like these, we'll call them recruiting services. Um, I get asked about that a lot. And my response has always been like, look, if you just reach out, you do the work and you actually want to go to that school, then you should be the one in communication, not your parents, not a recruiting service. I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but to me, that's how I kind of worked when I was young. I was just tenacious and just kept drilling people with, Hey, like, can we talk? Can we talk? I mean, what's, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, how much are you actually taking in people, emails and things like that into consideration, or are you just going out finding your own batch and disregarding that other stuff? Well, recruiting services certainly have a place. There's no doubt about it. And I think in maybe other sports other than golf, they may be a little more important. I don't know. I've never been a coach in another sport. Um, So I don't want to disparage recruiting services. Uh, They have their place Uh, for me personally. 
I would, I would rather hear from a player himself. In fact, I'd rather hear from a player than his parent. Mm-hmm. And then, but I would want to hear from his parents eventually, but I'd rather hear from the, the player. Now, some kids aren't sophisticated enough to figure out how to get to all these coaches or whatever, and then maybe he can use a recruiting service. But if you have a computer and, you know, you can do your own search, if you will. I mean, I would start if I was a player, I would start with geography. So I'm, I'm from Buffalo, New York. And you know what? I've had some tough winters. I would like to go south. So you just kind of draw a line in the country and you say, OK, I'm going to go here. Here's the kind of my my starting point. You know, maybe geography, maybe weather is part of it. Uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, academics are more important to me. So I'm going to filter that out, meaning, OK, I can't just make the decision based upon golf. I need to add in the academic part of it. So maybe a recruiting service can help you find those types of things. So I'm not going to say good or bad about recruiting services. They have their place. But I think you can do the work it, for yourself, too. You could do the work. It does take a lot of work, and it does take some diligence. But I'm trying to figure out anything in life that you really, really value. It didn't come because it was easy. Nothing of value ever comes because it's easy. So if you really want to filter this down and find your place to play, then you need to find out all the things that are important to you as a player and what you want to get out of the college experience. Um, I mean, to me, it's really, really important that, and I would find out what kind of a coach that you're talking to. You, you can have a great conversation. We're all chameleons. We can be anything we want to be for a phone conversation or, or even a two day visit. Mm-hmm. I can be anything I want, but I want to find out from other people, who is this person? So some people will say, well, you know, if, if Mike McGraw gives this kid, here's three people to talk to about me. Well, am I going to choose the people that are going to say good things about me or bad things about me? In general, probably we or the player or if you're going for a job interview. Have you done job interviews before? Oh, yeah. Did you put mm-hmm. the personal references, the three people that hate you most in the world? No, no, absolutely not. Oh. I put everybody that's going to say the best things about me. Best <laughs> But even those people, like you said, sometimes you have a hard time. You don't want to lie to a coach. You want to keep it honest. And it might not help the player every single time in a certain situation. But the the truth is, even if you're saying little Jimmy is a good player, little Jimmy is a hard worker, little Jimmy is a sweet kid. You can say all those things you want, but the tone of voice, maybe the body language, maybe the facial expression will tell another story altogether. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if I'm looking at or trying to find out who Mike McGraw is and I'm asking all these people about me, if, or me or any coach, I would find out from these people, I want to have a face-to-face conversation, maybe have a Zoom call. So what's Mike McGraw really like? Is he really a good guy? Uh, yeah, he's, yeah, he's kind of good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they can't hide it if they don't like me or if they don't think or respect me. Sure. So, but again, it's, it gets back to what am I willing to do to find the right situation for myself? And I think every young kid who's playing junior golf in the country probably thinks to himself, I want to go play at a power five conference school. I want to play at one of the highest ranked teams in the country. I want to play for a national championship. I want to be an all American. And those are all wonderful things. And you should seek that out. But if you're a junior in high school and average in 79, I think a phone call or a letter to a top five ranked team in the country is not a, not a good plan. It's a waste of your time. They're sure. not going to respond to you or they're going to respond to you with, no, I'm full or whatever. But the, and remember, we can't respond until June 15th after your sophomore year. But so if, if, if you parents or you prospects are 
sending emails and none of the coaches responding to you in your ninth grade, there's a reason they're not responding to you. And oh, by the way, if they are responding to you and you, it's not June 15th after your sophomore year, I don't think I'd go play for that coach either because he's willing to bend the rules to get you to come to his school. So yeah, interesting. Anyway. So I just recently turned on your podcast after the introduction. It's great, by the way, better than I found it. Uh, great stories. Everybody should listen to that. Um, so let's, let's kind of talk about your time transferring over to Baylor and what you've done to, to build the program up to, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be wrong in my facts here, but you've been to the, NCAA finals uh, a few times, correct? I think of the seven years I've been, well, actually six years, because we didn't have a national championship sure. in the COVID year. So six years, been four times. Uh, yeah. The other two times we finished sixth in the in the regional, so missed out by a shot each time, uh, not, mm. or maybe a couple of shots the first year. But so we've been competitive, no doubt about it. Yeah. So you've obviously had a huge impact on that program. I mean, so when you took over, like, where did you start? I know that's a broad question, but like, what, what's the culture shift that helped that? Well, fortunately for me, I took over for a great coach. Greg Priest was an awesome coach. He did a super job and he didn't get let go. He actually left to go take an athletic director's job at Tyler Independent School Systems in Tyler, Texas. Uh, Greg was doing a great job. His kids always graduated, by the way, his last nine years of coaching, every kid graduated that they went four years. Um, so Greg did a great job and left me with a stable of nice, wonderful kids, competitive kids, great students, really good golfers. So I didn't have to build a program from ground up. That was a wonderful thing there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't have this job if it hadn't been for Greg anyway. He, he called when he told the athletic director he was going to be taking this other job. The athletic director was kind of like, Greg, it's June. <laughs> we, we, what are we going to do? And, and he said, well, I would call Mike McGraw. He's, uh, he's a guy I would trust and, and anyway, so I was, I'm very thankful and always will be that Greg told Ian that because, I mean, Ian wouldn't have known how to get to me or I was an assistant coach at Alabama that year. The year after I got let go at Oklahoma State, I spent a year at Alabama. So he didn't leave the cupboard bare. It was really, really solid. The one thing I did change was he had recruited very internationally. And so I thought, well, I'm going to start recruiting in Texas a little bit and see if we can't change that a little bit. And we did that basically for six straight years, recruited pretty much all Texas kids. Uh, but we've branched out a little bit, had a Californian, had an Illinois, Indiana, and I even have a commitment that I can't talk about, but from another country in a couple of years. So uh, it, I'm not against having international players. It was just that we had a highly international team. And I thought in the middle of Texas, geographically speaking, it's in the center of, of state and the state produces the best junior players, or at least the second best crop of junior players in the country every single year. And gosh, I-35 runs right through our campus. So I, I did the math and I did the geography and I realized kids have to come through Waco to, you know, in Texas to play in junior golf tournaments. So we started doing that. The culture, we didn't have to change much. I mean, Greg had uh, maybe getting them to believe they could go to the national championship, maybe getting them to believe those kinds of things. But, but Greg had great people. And um, I'm thankful for that because I didn't have to start it from ground up. So I guess, where did you start though? So like you're getting to know these players and um, I, I mean, I guess what I'm digging at is what, what are your practices like? What are you putting your value into these players to help them kind of take that next level? Okay. So if, if you coach for 35 years and I hope to coach another 10 or I don't know how many I can coach, but 
if you coach for a long time, you're going to go through waves of different uh, attitudes, different techniques, different uh, viewpoints. You're going to be changing all the time and evolving. If you don't, I would be 1987 Mike McGraw. Okay. And that, that guy was a really wonderful high school coach and he didn't know a thing about what he was doing, but he did have a great heart for helping young men be better. Uh, but if all I knew was what I knew in 1987 and did the same things, basically I did for practice and techniques and the way that I talked to kids, if all that was the same as it was in 1987, I wouldn't have this job. There's no mm -hmm. chance I would have this job. And if I don't keep on evolving and continue to get better, I'm not going to have this job either. It's going to be gone as well. So, and I know my day is coming, but I, and, and I've always told people, and I'm going to get to your answer in, in your question in just a moment, but I've always told people the day I'm no longer relevant and the day I can't inspire a kid to be better and the day I can't, I can't I'm not excited to come to this job. I need to do something else. This isn't, mm -hmm. I, I just don't want to be here doing that, but how has it evolved and changed? When I was a high school coach for 10 years, I basically had to orchestrate and do everything from ground up. And I, I told them their every step they were going to take every day in practice and what we were doing. I mean, when I got to Oklahoma State, Mike Holder had been coaching for 25 years at that time. I was his assistant and he had kind of transitioned over to not mandating every moment of their day, but he would just show up at the range every day after school and find out who wanted to practice and what they wanted to work on. And so that was complete opposite end of the spectrum, letting the guys decide what they wanted to work on. Uh, and Mike had seen the other where you mandated every step they took. And that probably wasn't going to work either anymore either. So, but I've fallen somewhere in between. So one thing we have that I really like is what we call player led practices. So what, and, and that this has been a recent phenomenon within the last year that we started this. Uh, but that's where I pick a player and I give him a week advance notice. And I say, next week's three hour practice is on you. I want you to design every minute of that three hour practice. And it could be at the golf course. It could be at our practice area, wherever, but you need to come in and meet the day before and tell me what we're going to do, why we're going to do it, what you hope to accomplish and tell me everything about this. And each practice, there's only one stipulation other than those that I just gave you. And that is you must have a competitive uh, environment in there somewhere. There has to be a, a competitive element somewhere in there. So here's three hours, design a practice, competitive element. You tell us what we're doing and why we're doing it. And the coaches will stand back and we'll do what you tell us to do that day. If, you, if I need to go out and shag golf balls, I'll go do that. If I need to be taking down numbers at the track man machine, I'll do that. You tell me what I need to do. Player led practices are amazing. For one, it gets the players to think about their practice. So when they're doing their own individual practice, they're planning it out the night before and they are documenting what it is I want to individually work on tomorrow and why I want to do it and what I hope to accomplish. And so anyway, these player led practices have been great. Another thing is with the advent of instruction through the years being so much, and you know all about this, but it's become so much more part of what we do. I don't fight the instructors. In fact, I'm completely the opposite. I want to engage with them and find out who they are and what they're working on. I want to be another pair of eyes. No, I'm not doing it for a living. I'm not instructing golf swings for a living. It's not what I do. But I want to open the door for that instructor to come to me. So the only rule I have with an instructor is, this is it. If that player is on my practice tee on a Monday after his golf lessons he took all week long and he can't articulate what he's working on, he has no idea why he's doing it, and he has no idea what direction he's going or what he hopes to accomplish, 
with this instruction that he just got this weekend, then there's a, a disconnect someplace. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, it's either on the player or on the instructor or both that guys, you spent a weekend together, you spent four hours or whatever it was. I don't need to tell you this is what you need to work on, but you need to tell me what you're doing and why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So it does put the, the onus on the player to pay attention and to own his golf swing. And, but it also opens the door with the instructor because I can actually call them and tell them, you know, is, is this what you meant? Oh, yes, sir. Great. That's all I need to know. Or, Hey, what did you guys work on during that lesson? And how is it working? What can I expect to see? What could I do to help him when he gets back to campus? Because a lot of college coaches and high school coaches as well will stiff arm the instructor. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately it's ego. You have an ego. I have an ego. We all have them. And it's like, I don't want this instructor telling me how to coach my, no, I want this instructor. He got him to campus. You know, he's been working with him for five years and I recruited the kid and I wanted him. This guy's a big part of the, of the, of the success this young man's had. So I want to be a part of that too, but I don't want to get in the way. And I don't want to put up a wall between you and me, the, you, the instructor and me, the coach. It's like, we both have the same thing in mind. We want little Jimmy Smith to be as good as he can possibly be. And you want it because you've got all this invested in Jimmy and you just want to see him achieve his dreams. Well, I want the same. So anyway, so that's kind of how I've evolved with team practices, working with instructors. It's changed through the years. I'm definitely stealing that player led practice thing. <clears throat> that's beautiful. Well, like I, I absolutely love that. That was a lot of uh, <laughs> pain, suffering, agony, misery, tears, whatever you will, uh, through years of trying to mandate. This is much you, what you must work on. Well, Johnny is not working on the same thing Jimmy is, and he doesn't have the same issue that Jimmy has. So it's like they're in different places anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'm, my, my practice is I'm, if somebody wants to work on something, here's what we're going to do. But there's a competitive element too. So everybody's a competitor. And we're all competing. You're competing right now for podcast time with you know somebody out there. Sure. We're all competitors. So you want to kind of plug into that with each player, but the player-led practice puts it on them. And Mm -hmm. it reminds them of how they should work at their game. How much time uh, do you have kind of a system for how much you're having them like in a practice format versus playing format and playing? I still mean like practicing on the course, but I guess how much like course time versus range time, like, do you have a way you'd like to break that up or is that just, you can just kind of go with the flow on what's needed. Yeah. What's needed. Plus you have qualifying, plus you have tournaments. So you have different scheduling that kind of changes that a little bit, but I look back to two, First team All Americans at Oklahoma State that I coached, Charles Howe and Hunter or and um, Ricky Fowler. Charles Howe and Ricky Fowler couldn't look any different at preparing for a golf tournament. It just couldn't look any different. Ricky would show up on the range tee and hit a few balls. And he'd be looking around for somebody to go play golf with, and not everybody wanted to play. They wanted to stand in that range, and so on. Fortunately or, or unfortunately, he would yank me out on the golf course and I would go play golf with him. And it, that was painful because, I mean, I, I was not I was way past playing. I mean, it wasn't even uh, but I enjoyed the time with him and I got to he loved playing the game to prepare for a tournament. And he did a lot of work too. make no mistake about it. He had putting drills. He had things he wanted to accomplish in his swing, but he loved to play the game. Charles Howell loved to hit golf balls. Mm-hmm. And you could do anything with that guy. You could tell him to stand on his head and it was going to be three, 305 right down the middle. You could tell him to 
tucking his right elbow, 305, right down the middle. You could tell him to stand on one foot. It was 305, right down the middle. It was, but he could, he could just, he was a machine, and he still is to this day. I mean, he played well this week in Hawaii. He's made 22 cuts in a row at Sony, maybe 23. Um, I, to me, knowing that there's one guy that does it this way and another guy does it that way tells me I shouldn't make everybody do it a certain way. Right. So it, it's opened my eyes through the years. Charles was there on my first day and Ricky wasn't there on my last day at Oklahoma State, but pretty toward the end of my career. So everything in between sandwich was a bunch of really good players and guys I'd, you know, looked at, watched, trained, uh, questioned. And by the way, there's another, uh, and so I learned a lot from both of those two guys, those two extremes. But there's another dynamic that college coaches, high school coaches don't realize. For, for a, a college player, he gets two coaches. He might get three because he's got you back at home as instructor. So he's got two or three coaches, essentially. Coaches have 10 or 12 every year, and it's every single player. And I think coaches forget you can teach me. And so mm. if a kid comes in as a freshman, I'm not going to mandate very much. Um, here's when we qualify. You must go to class, blah, blah, blah. Show me how you work at the game. Show me what it looks like. And if you're getting great results at the end of this first semester, I've been taking notes all along, man, I'm learning from you. If your results are terrible, then I'm going to step in and try to help you manage your time better. I'm going to help you. Uh, let's talk to your instructor. Let's talk to, are you, do you have some physical problems, whatever. But it's like, I don't step in and mandate, this is the way you ought to work at golf. If we had done that with Charles Howell as a freshman and said, you need to play more. And Ricky Fowler as a freshman, you need to hit more golf balls. Well, it wouldn't have helped either guy. So mm -hmm. over time, you kind of figure out and read your players. And by the way, I still mess up. I still, I still give a kid more of something that he doesn't need, and that's okay. And if Mike Holder taught me one thing, he taught me a million things. But one of the things I remember him saying is, listen, you can't just let things go. You've got to confront things. If you don't, they'll just fester up. And he's, one of the things he said, I'll never forget it, because one of the guys that first year I was at Oklahoma State was really upset at what Coach Holder had said. And he said, I don't understand why you said that to me. And Mike said, listen, I may not always say the right thing, but everything I'm saying, has an intention of trying to help you be a better person and a better player. Everything I'm saying. So I'm going to miss. And sometimes I'll say the wrong thing, but it wasn't out of an, a lack of effort. I tried to do something to help you be better. And so you need to be more mature and just understand, okay, he missed on that one. That wasn't what I needed to hear today or be mature enough to go into his office and say, sir, I just want you to know you said this, 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 and this. And I appreciate that. And I know you're trying to help me, but I think I could be coached better this way. Let's talk about it. And it's like, how could an 18-year-old have enough guts to go in and talk to – well, if the coach is wanting to be better and if he wants you to be better, he'll open his door for that. I mean, that's important for the kid to say, Coach, you got to coach me a different way, and here's the reason why. Charles Howe, Ricky Fowler, they don't look the same. Yeah, I mean, that's really good insight, and that's what's led me down the path. And now it's a, you know, what I was telling you about mental golf type and personalities and understanding this because it is so different. And, and I was just learning that throughout my career is, gosh, like I would try to fit somebody in this mold. And I could see it really quick. Maybe it's because I have good intuition, but like I would just kind of pick up on it fast. Like that's just, that doesn't fit them. I got to find another way. So, you know, I think like just always being in that evaluative mindset, like you're saying, is, is important. I think that's something that all, really great coaches do it. I mean, you look at like Harvey Pennick was always talked about the difference between how he coached Ben Crenshaw and Tom Kite. 
Totally different. Right. Yeah. And it was kind of like that same thing. I forget which one was which, but one liked pound balls and one couldn't stand being on the range. Well, you know, Tom Pike was Charles Howe and uh, Ben Crenshaw was Ricky Fowler. I mean, yeah. they just, they were different personalities and, and Harvey did an amazing job of getting those two guys to become world class players. Mm-hmm. So, you know, something I talk about a lot in our program and other podcasts is what we'll call, and I stole this term from my buddy Andy at the fried egg, but player envy. So you got, you know, somebody that's doing well and then somebody else is going to be like, well, what are they doing? And try to switch. I think you see it on tour all the time. People bouncing coaches, changing swing stuff. I mean, how much are you seeing that at the college game, especially at that level? Uh, somebody maybe get off track because they're trying to chase what somebody else is doing. Well, a perfect example recently would be what Roy McElroy said. He had gotten off track because he tried to be Bryson DeChambeau. He tried to hit it eight miles. Nobody other than maybe Jack Nicholas or Greg Norman have driven it as well as Roy over an extended period of time. He mm. didn't need to change that. And he knew it and recognized it. And, and he's back on track in college. It happens all the time because now, but, but there's a, a good part to this too. If you're on the team with an all American saddle up next to him, watch mm. what he's doing. You're going to glean something from him. That's going to help you be a better player. I think it's no accident that great players in the history of the game always had somebody to push them. I mean, Byron Nelson had Ben Hogan and Sam Snead. Arnold Palmer had Jack Nicholas and Gary Player. Sebi Ballesteros had Greg Norman and Nick Faldo. Mm-hmm. And Phil and, and Tiger were together. It, they come in little bunches, the very best players in the game. So it's not like Tiger tried to copy Phil or Phil tried to copy Tiger. There was no way they could play the game even remotely the same. Mm-hmm. but they pushed each other. So I would suggest if you're a college player that you find out who the best are and what they're doing and figure out some of the things you think apply to you. Uh, but you can't do everything they do. Um, mm-hmm. You can't. And I, so I would, I would suggest that you do that. You find out some things like on your team, an all American or a great player. What's he do? I'll never forget Alan Bratton and Chris Tidlin at Oklahoma state. Alan's now the coach there and Chris played the tour forever or played Corn Ferry Tour for a long, long time. Um, they got there as freshmen and realized we're not good enough to make this team right now. We're just not. Uh, and that team did win the national championship that year with Bob May on the team and Kevin Wentworth and some really good players. But they chose early in that year that they signed a little blood pact with each other. We're going to be the two hardest working guys at Oklahoma State. We're going to push ourselves as much as we possibly can. We're not looking around to anybody. We're going to do it ourselves. And they both became, they redshirted that year, and they both became four-time All-Americans. Allen was the college player of the year. Chris finished runner-up in the, in the NCAA championship, and they won a national championship their fifth year. The point with that is, is they used the most important and valuable resource that a collegiate golfer has, and that's other collegiate golfers. That's a valuable resource. So you're not copying people, but you're using everything they've got that allows you to be better. And you're competitive, so you're trying to be better than they are. And I, I just look at it, and, and it's not a comparison game. It's like, that's not either. I don't want the comparison game. But it's like, you know what? You know, people, that there's one other dynamic. I'm rambling here. Pardon me, Kyle. You're but, good. Talk uh, away. The, the, the part in recruiting where a coach will look you straight in the eye and say, well, you, you can't go there. You're not good enough to go there. 
And I love it when a kid says, yes, sir, thank you very much, and walks out of that man's office and it fires him up because it lit a fire inside him that was like, he said, he doesn't think I'm good enough. I do. So, and, and then the opposite end of that spectrum is when somebody says, well, you know, coach, uh, I'd love to come to Baylor, but, you know, I, I don't think I'd play my freshman year and I want to play the PGA Tour. Okay. You want to play the PGA Tour and you're afraid of my golfers? This is a problem too. Mm-hmm. And there's somewhere in between where you, you've got to kind of make, if, if I average 77 and I want to play the PGA Tour, uh, I don't, shouldn't come to a Power 5 conference school. I should go someplace else where I can play, develop my game for four years, and then maybe get there. I mean, let's think about this. Zach Johnson grew up an Iowa Hawkeyes football fan. And Zach Johnson desperately wanted to go to Iowa. He, he wanted to go to Iowa so badly he wanted to walk on at Iowa, and the coach didn't take him. And Iowa was not ranked in the top 100 in college golf at the time. And all he did was go to Drake and be a, a pretty solid player there. And all he did was build a Hall of Fame career. Now, I know that's an example, an anomaly, and way out there. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, you've got to be able to compete to get better. You can't get better by sitting on a driving range tee with all Americans. You, so you got to get, you got to find the fit where you you have a chance to make the team. Mm-hmm. But I also don't want to go someplace where it's a given, and I don't have to beat anybody. And I also don't want to be afraid of going someplace because there's some good players there. Mm-hmm. if you want to play the tour right i mean come on <laughs> I, I love what you said i got a huge smile on my face because i'm definitely that person like I, I i say this a lot like i dare you to tell me i can't do something yeah. it will be done i promise you like that's just always been my mentality and i've always kind of had that fire i guess but um i mean you've been around so many so many great players legends hall of famers um the one thing i was like asking coaches like yourself is what do you see as the the difference maker between the ones that really get there and don't. And I just can't buy that. It's how good your swing is. No, it's not. It's definitely not that. So if you could, and they were sitting in your office, I would want every single recruit to just be able to stand there. And I'm going to take this hacksaw and I'm just going to cut him right down the middle, open up his chest and I'm going to look inside. And if the DNA says I'm a golfer, that's the guy I want, but we can't do that. So what you have to do, now that was a strange analogy, but the point is is I think what makes these guys great and why they play the tour and why they become Hall of Famers and why they do all that is because inside them, that's what they're going to be. I'm going to be a golfer. That's what I'm going to do. And so that's what I I know. And that's that's why I've got a former player here at Baylor named Garrett May. And Garrett and I went through some amazing time. I will look back at Garrett's story, and I want to write his story someday, because he had possibly the most volatile temper I've ever seen on any player in the history of my life on a golf course. And it always held him back, but it was that fire and that passion that I knew if we could figure out how to harness it. And when you cut Garrett down and open him up, it's like (laughs) Garrett, he's a golfer. He's his DNA says I'm a golfer. So that's number one. And that's why I think Garrett's going to keep on playing for a long, long time. So they, they do have DNA in their golf or golf in their DNA. Pardon me. So there's that. And then number two, they absolutely love the game. I've seen very few people that have become great that didn't love what they were doing. And I'm talking about it in any field. If you think about it, if you don't love what you're doing, it's going to be hard to be truly drawn by it. Or, you know, when something inspires you, you don't have to go to it. It just brings you there. It just pulls you there. And so if you don't love what you're doing, it's going to be hard to really be great at it. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Their DNA says I'm a golfer and I really, really love the game. 
And then, then they use all their resources, then their talents. And by the way, I have a, a, a saying that's not mine, but I use with teams often. And that is your talent is a gift from God. What you do with it is your gift back to him. So all of us have talent. Every one of us does. What do you do to develop that talent? What are you doing? And so I guess that's the third little prong is they, you know, they're in their DNA. It's golf. They love the game. Number two. And number three, they develop the talent they do have. Yeah. I mean, I love that you said that. I mean, it, it comes back to that internal motivation. And like you said, I, I'm with you. I don't, I don't know if you can externally motivate somebody to have that passion. I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of parents try to do it, you know, obviously, but um, it's a hard thing to do. If, if you don't want to do it, you don't want to be great. Then uh, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I've never enjoyed it when I know that I want this for a kid more than he wants it for himself. That's mm-hmm. kind of a, a tough deal. And, and if, if I'm going one direction and he's kind of going the other direction. When are we ever going to meet to have a relationship? You know, it's like, I, I want him headed in the same direction I'm headed in, or I want to go in the same direction he's headed. But if he's headed this way of lack of motivation, not really enjoying the game, not, not if that's part of what he's doing, I can't get there. I don't understand that. I don't understand and I can't comprehend being lazy and not enjoying what you're doing. And mm-hmm. I, I just, it's not in my, it's not in my DNA. I don't same. understand. So, yeah. So do you have any uh, good, like, we'll call them Cinderella stories you could share? Yes. Like players that you just didn't think were going to be that player and then just came on? Yeah, probably the greatest example of it in my career is Zach Robinson, who played golf at Oklahoma State, was a two-time golf All-American, and he was the Byron Nelson Award winner as the number one student athlete in all of college golf. Um, He grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, and TCU did not recruit him. He was just a pretty average player, great student. And, but he kept on writing me when Mike Holder would, I was Mike Holder's assistant at the time. And when he, he, all these resumes in those days, kids sent hard copy resumes mm-hmm. and all these resumes. Well, if Mike wasn't interested, he just put them on my desk and I was responsible to, cause he had been doing it for 25 years. He was tired of handwriting letters to kids that were just not good enough to be there. And Zach's letter came, you know, his letter from Mike got on my desk and, so I wrote a letter back to him and Zach responded immediately. And then I realized this kid's really intelligent and he's a really neat kid. And he and I had a few phone calls. And so Zach started recruiting me. And so when in those days, only one coach could coach on or recruit on the road at the time. And so Mike Holder was getting ready to go to the U.S. Junior. And he said, OK, I've got my list of kids I should follow. Do you have any you want to add to it? And I said, yeah, add Zach Robinson. And he goes, why? And I said, well, he's from Texas. You've done really well in Texas. Really smart kid, Mike. Think he could get academic scholarship. And he did qualify for the U.S. Junior. He's not that bad. So Mike went to follow him. Zach made the semifinals of the U.S. Junior that week. So the whole country's following him. And Mike got back to Stillwater and he said, yeah, I think I want to probably call Zach. He called Zach and Zach will tell you exactly where he was, which booth he was in, in Jason's deli. He knew exactly where that moment when, because when Mike Holder called him, it was over. So anyway, that's still not the Cinderella part of it because it's like, he was not very good when he got there. He had a terrible grip, average golf swing. His, his divots were so deep on that team range on the tee, tee box. And he forgot to sand them one day. Mike Holder made him hit golf balls off a downhill slope out of a rough for the next two weeks. He was not allowed to hit balls on that range tee. And so Zach figured out something. I'm going to 
I'm going to shallow out my, my downswing here a little bit. It's not going to be so deep because I don't want to make divots like that and upset this man. So Zach redshirted his freshman year, got a job at Karsten Creek that summer, filling divots so he could use the practice facility. In those days, you could not use the practice facilities in the summer. And so he filled divots for four hours a day in the morning and then practiced all afternoon. And he did it to kind of get in front of us so that they, we would know he was there and he was working and he played golf that summer. Anyway, the next year we hosted nationals. He finished 18th at nationals. He was an honorable mention, all American and or 15th at nationals. And quite frankly, went on to have a great career was a third team, all American in his fifth year. Um, uh, and, and it's still the single most uh, pointed photograph I've ever had in my coaching career is a picture of Zach carrying the national championship trophy, his senior year, fifth year, senior, the smile was ear to ear. It was unbelievable. And Zach Robinson, honestly, is just a great human being. And he's a cancer survivor now. And he's got a wonderful wife and kids living in Edmond, Oklahoma. He's my uh, Cinderella story because I don't think anybody expected him to do what he did. And I've got a national championship ring, not solely because of him, because Jonathan Moore was a bunch under par that spring. But uh, Zach played beautifully. Wow, that's wonderful. Well, Coach Mike McGraw, Baylor, you guys are doing big things. We're rooting for you. We'll let you get going. I appreciate your time greatly. Again, got the podcast better than I found it, which everybody needs to listen to because it's fantastic. Great stories. You bring a lot of good guests on there too, which I really appreciate. Well, you know, that's you kind, of, kind of the same thing I'm doing is trying to find the most interesting people I can talk to and, you know, have these conversations. So I appreciate you doing that. Well, thank you for having me on today. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, it's kind of fun. Uh, when somebody and honestly it's it's humbling when somebody wants your opinion on something you need to take that you know that means something so thank you so much yeah absolutely hey thank you so much for listening to the end of this episode i hope you got some incredibly good stuff out of this it would be awesome if you really find value in this podcast you drop us a five-star review uh leave a comment it really helps continue to grow helps us get great guests on the show which essentially is going to bring you some of the best information that is the journey of behind the swing is to get the absolute best out of these people players coaches fitness people you know whoever we can find that's going to give you great information to help you grow in your golf game so again thank you for following us we'll see you in that next episode